Psalm 145. We are continuing our series. We're doing a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, do all things for the glory of God. So we're looking in some ways in this series about how if everything is designed, has its intention, its purpose to bring glory to God, we're looking at, at how, well, how do we do that? So if everything, everything is designed, its purpose, its intention is to ultimately make much of the glorious God that we have. So uh, drinking and, and eating delicious food has as its design, its purpose to make much of a great and glorious God. Uh, the beauty of a sunset has as its design, its purpose, ultimately to draw our attention to bring glory to God. Everything is designed, is, has as its purpose to bring, bring glory to God. This morning, as we continue this series of Sanctifying the Ordinary, we look at Father's and it's Father's Day, it's a lovely day, we'll be looking at it. And we want to look at what it is as, as God has given us families and within those families he's given us fathers which if everything has its design, its purpose, its intention to bring glory to God, we want to look at how being a dad has that, how a dad, in the way that a dad might love and care for and, and make judgments and bring correction, how a dad lavishes gifts on their child, shows grace, how a dad and the design and the function of a dad ultimately is, is that we might be drawn, our gaze might be lifted up to witness and encounter the glorious dad, the one who is, who is even greater in the way that he gives, in the way that he cares, in the way that he loves and sustains and provides and the way that he makes judgments and the way that he brings correction and the way that he lavishes gifts upon his kids. And so that's what we want to do this morning. As we continue our series, as I said, Sanctifying the Ordinary, this morning we're going to be looking at what is, what, how is a dad and how is the function and the role of a dad in its original purpose designed to lift our eyes up to see how great and glorious our heavenly dad is and to give him the praise and the glory that he is due. So we're going to look at Psalm 145 we're going to bounce around in a, um, a couple of different passages this morning. So we're going to first start off by reading Psalm 145. If you were there, I'm going to read just 1 to 7, and then I'm going to pray for us. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendour of your majesty, on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Father, I just pray for grace this morning. 
It's a great day to celebrate for many different reasons. And so, Father, may you give us another gift this morning. May you give us this gift that, that as we look at your word, we would encounter you. As we ponder how a dad can function and love and show grace and care, that our eyes ultimately, over and above this, would be drawn to you as our dad. That our worship and our praise ultimately this morning would again and again come to you, for you are worthy. Amen. I love sport. I always have. And it probably doesn't even surprise many of you that I'm starting off but with an illustration where I talk about sport in a, in a sermon. Uh, but I do love sport and we'll come to talk about you know, the, the strengths and weaknesses of that later. But I do love sport and growing up, my love for sport meant that I actually wanted to get better at sports as well and better at and acquiring new skills in the sports. And for me, the way that I would do that was not by watching DVDs, didn't have DVDs, by watching videos. And so Mike and I, one of the other guys in our church, we used to swap videos of surfing. And, uh, and I wanted to become a better surfer and so I would watch on my video Kelly Slater. And in particular, I wanted to watch, if he did a nice big carve, I would put it in slow-mo as best as you could on a video and, and try and watch his body. And I'd be watching, okay, where's his arm as he does a big carve? Is it up high or down low? As he shifts his weight, as he's bringing the board round back under him, how's he shifting his weight onto his left foot? And I wanted to then try and replicate what I saw someone who did it really well in the way that I surfed. I would see the professional and I would watch it in slow-mo and then try and replicate it. I love soccer. And the same thing, there was a professional uh, soccer player called Ronaldo. And the way that this guy could control the ball and he would fade a player, he'd fake to the left and then off to the right. And I would in slow-mo on my video watch how he would drag the ball with his foot to the left and then with the outside of his foot take it away to the right. And then I would try and replicate what I saw done really well. I would try and do what I saw done really well in the way that I could do it. I lo- that's, in some ways, that's how many of us learn. We see it done well and so we want to replicate. And so for me, even if you were to look at me wash a car, uh, you would see, in essence, by the way that I wash a car, that I've seen my dad wash a car and I'm replicating exactly what he did. If I were to drive you to the beach from the Pennant Hills area, Normanhurst area, to Monavale, you would see the, the path that I take is exactly the path that my dad would take. I replicate what he has modelled. I replicate his good examples sometimes. <laughs> so we, we learn by replicating and, and I think we learn by looking at good examples. Well, this morning I want us to not do what the world does and look at the examples of, a, of say, Homer Simpson or another TV dad, Phil Dumpy, and they're fun and they make us giggle and laugh, but ultimately they're dads who kind of show an absent fathering kind of role. And, and so if we look around in our world for good dads, there doesn't seem to be too many that we can replicate, that we can model necessarily. And so rather than, and maybe you've got a great dad and that's excellent, 
But, but what I want us to do, for those of us who perhaps are searching around going, I'm not sure what I should be replicating when it comes to being a good dad, when it comes to being a good dad, I want us this morning to spend some time looking at a couple of dads in the Bible. And I want us to, if you like, go through some of the things that they did, their examples in slow-mo in the Bible, so that dads, you can look at their example you can look at how they love their God and look at the way that, that impacts their practice as a dad and that we might be able to go home and be better dads in the way that we love our kids as we love our God. I hope my, my prayer is that this morning it would be an encouragement for all of us whether you're a dad or not and that you too can learn from their example. The two guys that we're going to look at, the two dads, is Boaz, Boaz and then his great-grandson, King David. So Boaz and then his great-grandson, King David. So we're actually going to start off in the book of Ruth. I know we just read Psalm 145 and we'll come back to that when we come to King David. But we're going to look at, originally, to start with, the book of Ruth. It's a book that's right at the start or near the start of your Bible. It's just near the book of Judges, if you find Judges. And as we go there, we're going to look at Boaz... And there's two things that I want us to, if you like, look at in slow-mo of the life of Boaz as dads and how we can look at his example. The two things for Boaz that I want us to look at is Boaz trusted God in difficult circumstances. Boaz trusted God in difficult circumstances. And the second lesson that I want to go in slow-mo as we look at Boaz is that Boaz loved his wife, the mother of his children. Boaz loved his wife. So Boaz, he trusted God. The first point that we look at as we go slow-mo of Boaz is he trusted God in difficult circumstances. As dads, we know that, and, and for all of us, right, in a fallen world, we encounter difficulty and trials and temptations. Uh, for me, I find it tempting as a dad when I come home after a day's work and and I've shared this before, that the thing that I kind of want, I want to just have a nice, quiet home. I want to have a nice home where I can just sit and do what I want to do, perhaps watch a television show and just take my mind off things. But instead, what I often encounter is kids who are fighting each other or kids who are wrestling over certain things or a two-year-old boy who's biting his sisters or... and and. It's a situation that confronts me. And in this difficulty, as a dad, I want to run. I want to run away and find comfort somewhere. It's a difficult situation. How would Boaz act in difficult situations? Look with me at Ruth. Let's get a little bit of context. How do we trust God in difficult situations? How did Boaz do this? The first verse, Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. Guys, Israel has come out of Egypt. They've been led by Moses. They've wandered in the wilderness and they've finally been led by Joshua into the promised land. As Moses has given them the law and he's instructed them, if you live in the promised land, here's the way to really enjoy it. If you don't live like this, you're not going to enjoy it. There's going to be consequences. And we find that that they're living in a time where there is a consequence. There's a famine. 
something's going on. Perhaps they're not living the way they're meant to. And it, we actually understand, well, it's the, it's the time of the judges. A little bit more background. Judges, if this is the context, is when Ruth, the book of Ruth, is taking place. The book of Judges, if you've ever read it, kind of functions in a cycle where Israel, God's people, God's people might be going well and loving God, but then they might choose to reject God and rebel against God and they fall into sin. They run and worship other gods or they, do, they interact with other nations and things go bad for them. And then in the cycle they then cry out to God, help us! And God in his grace and mercy raises up a judge who then leads Israel out of the difficult situation to make things good again. But then in the cycle they then rebel against God and things go bad and then they repent and God raises up a judge. But what you find in this cycle is every time things go bad they get, really, they get worse and worse. To the point where the, the final judge that is raised up, he's not even a great judge. Samson, he himself is attracted to other nations and other nations and what they are doing, the Philistines. And so you find in this cycle, if that's what's going on, that it's not a good time for Israel. They're not living faithfully. That's the context, that's the situation. Things are hard spiritually for Israel. Things are hard economically, there's a famine. It's a difficult situation, a difficult circumstance that this book presents to us as we open it up. Now, how, how can you respond when things are difficult? There are two main male characters in the book of Ruth, Elimelech and Boaz. And I want to just, first of all, before we go slow-mo on Boaz, I want us to have a quick look at how Elimelech, another Israelite man, how he responds in a difficult situation. Let's have a look at verse 2. The name of the man, oh sorry, we'll go verse 1 for a bit more context. And a man of Bethlehem, halfway through, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. <clears throat> Elimelech sojourns to Moab. Difficult situation, difficult times, economic hardship because it's a famine. Spiritually things aren't going great. Rather than repent and seek God, Elimelech bolts. And where does he go? He goes to Moab. Now again, a little bit of historical background. Moab, the Moabites, uh, we encounter them in Numbers 22 where they send curses on Israel and we encounter them again in 25, Numbers 25 where the Moabite girls are trying to seduce the Israelite men and then lead them and tempt them to worship the Moabite gods. The Moabite god, the main one, they had several, the main one was a god called Chemosh and Chemosh they believed, the men in Moab believed that if, if they wanted things to go well, if, they, if things were hard and they wanted things to go well, to please Chemosh, they would sacrifice their children. It was not a great place. But it was, it was flourishing better in terms of ec- the economy than Israel, than Bethlehem at the time. And so Elimelech backs himself, thinks that he can do the runner, runs away from God's promised land, runs away from repenting to God and runs to Moab of all the places. He runs to Moab. In in difficult times, he runs from God. He seeks refuge elsewhere. Slow-mo on Boaz. Boaz doesn't run. 
Boaz, in a difficult situation, a difficult circumstance, remains. We know that all of Israel eventually repents. Verse 6, the famine is lifted. And in Old Testament times, that means that they've obviously come back and said, God, help us, and come back to a place of realising God is God. We know Boaz, we don't know a heap about how he walked through that difficult time, but we do know by, the, by chapter 2, verse 4, that he certainly appears to be a man of God, a man that wants others to know he's God. Boaz, in this situation, didn't run to Moab. Boaz, in a difficult situation where it would have been easy to run, remains and trusts God. It's, it's hard, isn't it? In difficult situations, how will we react? What a lesson that can be for our children, dads, if we trust God when things are difficult. What a lesson that can be for those who are watching us who learn how we trusted in the trustworthy God when things are difficult. Boaz trusted that this is the promised land that has been given to us. And he remained. Even though it would have been hard spiritually, even though it would have been hard economically, he remained and trusted God. If Boaz can trust God, church, I want to challenge us, how much more ought we as New Testament believers trust God? Those of us who can see the historical evidence that Christ fulfills all the promises that are made in the Old Testament. If we can see that In those fulfilled promises, God is more than trustworthy. That in sending Christ, we can be certain that God is for us. We can be certain that when he says our sins are forgiven in Christ, that we are forgiven. How much more should we trust the trustworthy God? But look at Boaz, how he trusts in difficult circumstances and may his example, his his imitation, his, his example be a great one for us to look at and replicate in the way we live, to trust the trustworthy God ourselves. And so maybe, maybe like me, you're having difficulty, dads, in parenting. And maybe it's the sleepless nights and, and it's tempting you and, and making you wake up cranky and, and more irritable as your child, is, your newborn is waking and hardly sleeping. Maybe it's the two-year-old who's chucking tantrums and you're not sure how you're meant to deal with that. Maybe it's the five-year-old who's telling you lies and you're not sure how to walk through that and you, you keep trying to bring discipline and you keep trying to teach them about the importance of truth. Maybe it's the teen who still is an ongoing conversation about trying to teach them respect. But you're finding wherever you are at as a dad that parenting can be difficult and testing. Or maybe it's an even external circumstance and your kids are watching you as the finances have been testing you. And your kids are watching you as you walk through a relational challenge. It's a difficult external situation. Where will you run to for refuge? Where will you run to for comfort in this difficult situation. Will you run to Moab? Grass looks greener. I'm going to run away from the the difficulty and try and seek pleasure, seek, or I'm going to back myself somehow? Or will you be a man like Boaz and trust God? Trust the trustworthy God? 
The second lesson that I think that we can look at as we go in slow-mo of, of uh, Boaz, not only did he trust God in difficult circumstances, but Boaz loved his wife graciously. Boaz loved his wife graciously. A little bit more background for this book, the book of Ruth. So Elimelech goes to Moab with his two sons and his wife Naomi. While he's there, Elimelech and his two sons actually end up passing away, leaving Naomi and the sons had married. Naomi eventually decides that she's going to go back to Bethlehem and one of the daughter-in-laws, Ruth, goes with her. Ruth is a Moabite girl. So Ruth and Naomi head back to Israel. It's a bleak future for these two widows. It doesn't look promising. One of them is the Israelite woman who ran when things were hard. The other one is a Moabite girl who has a reputation. Moabites had a reputation, particularly Moabite girls, as being women who might seduce Israelite men. Uh, they were no, they, they, the Israelites knew how they lived. They knew about their gods they worshipped. And it wouldn't have necessarily been the brightest reception for Ruth and Naomi as they come back. She wouldn't necessarily have been the kind of girl that everyone is thinking, that's the girl I want my son to marry. In regarding Ruth, this widow. And yet Boaz, Boaz meets Ruth. And we, we see Boaz meet Ruth in the first encounter, if you like, is in chapter 2, verse 9. Boaz is so gracious to this Moabite girl. And, and, and the Ruth is trying to glean food from the fields that, that Boaz owns. And Boaz is saying to his workers, let her have as much as we can give in essence. Let's be generous to her. Boaz is so gracious to Ruth. Now in this context, this relationship, this friendship develops. And Naomi, the, the mother-in-law, comes up with a plan to try and marry off Ruth. And so Naomi, weird plan decides that what she's going to do, it's an, you can read this in an ambiguous way, I think, as, we, as you read it, but Naomi sends Ruth to go and sleep at the feet of Boaz while he's sleeping. Now, whether it was intended that, that Naomi's plan was that Ruth would seduce Boaz, maybe, we don't know. You can certainly read that into it. It's possible, not sure of Naomi's intentions. But Ruth goes and sleeps at the feet of Boaz. And now, you can expect many men, if they woke up and there is this uh, Moabite girl with, a, with a, probably a reputation, she's a Moabite, sleeping at his feet. That would be a temptation for a single man. And yet, Boaz loves Ruth with grace and respect and honours her. And so in this situation, Boaz doesn't take advantage of Ruth, but he's a man of integrity and honour. He's a man that wants to show respect to Ruth, a man that wants to show grace to Ruth. And instead he goes about the right way. He does want to marry Ruth. He does want to be with her, but he wants to go about the right way in a way that respects her and honours her and shows her grace. I think the way that Boaz interacts with Ruth in this book screams of a husband's love for a wife, screams of a husband who graciously loves his wife. Boaz, a little bit more background on him, his dad, Salmon, married Rahab, the Jericho harlot. 
And so Boaz is watching his dad and his mum interact and seeing a dad show grace to a woman who many would have not. He's watched his dad show grace and accept and love a woman who many would have shunned with her history of being a prostitute. And so Boaz has seen that and encountered a husband love and lavish grace on one who perhaps others would have thought was unlovely. And so Boaz encounters Ruth the Moabite and Boaz loves and lavishes grace on one who others would have thought was unlovely. Paul, in Ephesians 5, talks about the love of a husband and a wife. In Ephesians 5.25, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What a high calling. And he goes on in verse 32 to explain that when, when Moses was writing Genesis about marriage, when God revealed marriage in Genesis, Paul explains in Ephesians 5 that the actual purpose or the design of marriage might be that we would encounter and see the gospel. We would encounter in the way a husband loves his wife, we would encounter and see the love of Jesus for the bride of Christ. In the way that Boaz loves and shows grace on one who others would have thought was unlovely, you might be drawn to see the way that Christ loves and shows grace on you and I. And so this example of marriage can scream the gospel. The example a dad can have in the way that he loves his wife can scream the gospel to an audience, and in particular the audience who is in your home, your kids. A visiting African pastor uh, by the name of Stephen Longu came to the church that I was at before Sovereign Grace in Philip, South Tamara. Stephen Longu is a famous or well-known uh, African evangelist and when he was in our church, he preached and then at the end of preaching, he, he was, uh, people were coming up and he was praying for people. And some friends of ours who were expecting their baby came up and uh, they went to get prayer from Stephen. And Stephen, in essence, could see, clearly could see that Lucy, our friend, was pregnant with their first child. And he turned to Ed and he said to Ed, you want to love this child? You love her. You want to love this child? You love her. You want to love this child? You love her. And three times he said it, by the end of it, they were bawling in tears and, and it was a moment for them to really realise that the way that we can love dads, the way that we can love our kids is by loving our wife. Love her with grace. Love her like Boaz loved Ruth. Love her like Christ loved the church. What an example, hey? Boaz trusted God in difficult circumstances. And Boaz loved his wife. Two situations, two slow-mos, if we like, on the video that I just want to look at and as a dad I want to replicate in my own life in the way that I, in difficult times, will trust God and in the way that I want to love my wife. Love Bianca with grace as Christ loved the church. 
Well, the second slomo, the second character that I want us to, or person in the Bible that I want us to look at is David. So turn with me to Psalm 145. Now, David, as I said before, is actually the great-grandson of Boaz. And so in many ways, the legacy, if you like, of this man who loved Ruth, the legacy of this man who was willing to trust God in difficult circumstances, the way that he shepherded his family, leaves a legacy that eventually a man can be raised up able to shepherd a nation. Not all of us are called to shepherd a nation. We're just called to shepherd our families, to care, provide for, protect our families. And in the way that we do that, we can leave a legacy and impact others through our sons and daughters. Boaz impacted Israel in a great way through his great-grandson being raised up, David. And what a man he is. We're going to read his last psalm in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 145, or at least sections of it in a moment. Before we go there, I want to just make the point that this, this psalm is kind of addressing or a side issue in, in some ways for us. We are, all of us humans, worshippers. We worship what we think is great. We make much of things that we think are great and we praise things that we think are great. All of us. And, and you can tell it often by the way we speak, right? And so I began by kind of alluding to the fact that I was talking about sport again. And I do love sport and I do speak a lot about sport. And certainly there have been times in my life where if you counted me in particular surfing, that you would hear in the way that I speak as I'm with you, I just wanted, I wanted to commend to you, I would have commended to you that surfing is great. And I would bring up in conversation surfing in incredible ways, in intentional, deliberate and creative ways because I loved surfing and I praised surfing. I thought surfing was great. We're going to encounter in this psalm King David who is a man who worships. But instead of worshipping surfing as if surfing is great, He goes far above surfing. And we're going to encounter a man that I think is an example for all of us, but in particular for us dads, that we can learn from him. Because in David, we we meet a man who who worships a great God. And just like I would commend surfing because I thought surfing was great, we're going to encounter a, a man, David, who thinks God is great and secondly commends to his children, commends to the next generation how great God is. He wants to speak of the greatness of God again and again with creative and intentional and deliberate ways. So the two things that we're going to look at as we examine David, that he he loves a great God and he wants to commend this great God to others. So look with me if you like. We're going to read verse 1 to 3 to start with of that psalm, Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. 
and his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. David is in the highest key of praise here as we encounter the, this man just worshipping the greatest God. And there are no equals. Surfing doesn't even compare with the greatness of the Almighty God. And he speaks about the greatness of God in his works. And it doesn't take much to think, okay, perhaps even if we just ponder some of his works in creation, how great is God? The, the, the power of a wave as it surges against the, uh, the beach or the brightness of the lightning bolt and the power that is in that, the strength of a lightning bolt as it beams across the sky against a, a rich black backdrop or the strength of an ant as it carries a, a piece of food on its back or the intricate web of a, of a spider or the cycle of water that provides, as, as water precipitates or comes up into, to make clouds and then water, delivers water to where it's needed. Isn't that incredible? The, the, the wisdom, the, the unsearchable greatness of God in creation as we look at God in, in the works of this world in creation, the breath that you have, the molecules that make up you. How great is God? David goes on to praise the greatness of God, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. David encounters a God who, who is not only just incredible in the works he does in creation, but David has encountered a God whose work in history, whose work is as he encounters in history, is a work of salvation. God, David knows this God to be one who, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove his sins. David knows this God as the one who, who lavishes grace and mercy upon Israel. David encounters a God who is great in his salvation. And then we encounter, not only does David love a great God, but it just, he can't help but it overflows in the way that he wants to commend this great God. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Or verse 12. David wants to make known to the children of man the, your mighty deeds and your glorious splendour of your kingdom. Or by the end, he's, he's not even saying just the next generation. Anyone that has breath, anyone that, that, that is living and has a heartbeat, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is a man who so loves the great God that he wants everyone, he wants to invite everyone, but in particular we see it twice he in particular referenced the next generation children. David, as a dad, wants the next generation, wants his kids to know that he thinks God is great. Moses wrote the same in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, we read verse 6 to 7 of Deuteronomy 6. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Moses, like David, wanted to commend the greatness of God to the next generation. 
And he wants it to be a part of everyday life. In the same way that I could speak about surfing in any context, in any situation, because I thought surfing was great, how much more ought we, as we have encountered a glorious and great God, a God who is great in creation, a God who is a great saviour, who sent his son to die for us, sinners like you and me, that we might know this incredible and great God, how much more ought we be commending, be overflowing in our speech to the next generation, to all flesh even, of how great our God is? If you like, praise of God ought to be a Christian's native tongue. Praise of God ought to be a Christian's native tongue that just overflows all the time. So when I'm with my children and we're bouncing around on the trampoline together to pause and look around and and, and there is ample opportunity for me to praise God and draw their attention to a great God, whether it's the birds that are flying past or as we gaze through the trampoline at the ants as I spoke about before or maybe it's the leaf and to ponder that, that the leaf at the top of the tree that is beside our trampoline gets water that is being drawn from the roots but below the soil. The incredible glory of God that is all around us. I want to draw my kids' attention to that, that their gaze would be lifted up to the God who created all that is around them. But not just to commend to my kids the greatness of God in the works, but to commend to my kids the greatness of God in my life. I want my children to encounter, yes, the historical Jesus that that we read and encounter the gospel that we find in the Bible. I I want to teach my children that. But I also want to then share and overflow in how that has affected their daddy and how their daddy has encountered this great God personally. So I want my kids to hear me speak naturally with my native tongue of praising God that I was once lost but now I'm found. That when I talk about meeting Bianca that it's couched in the language of the God that is personal and gives me incredible gifts. That, that my story would again and again be bound up in his story. That that be the story that is always told to my kids. That I would be like David, commending to the next generation, commending to my children how great is our God that they would encounter through their dad a great and glorious God. As we, as I would study Kelly Slater and his surfing and then try and replicate it, study, study the way that King David praised the great God and overflowed in commending that great God to his kids and replicate that. I've been thinking though, in terms of David, as far as I could find, David's kids, as you look in the Bible, I think he had 18 all up from what I could find. And some of them that you read about in the Bible, that they don't necessarily follow their father's ways. And so whether you, maybe the most famous one is Solomon, who ends up marrying over 700 women and being led astray to worship idols and other gods and loves money. Or... Another one of his sons, Amnon, does horrible things to his stepsister. And so consequently, another one of his sons, 
Absalom murders Amnon. Uh, Some of them try and rebel against David, rebel against their dad. They're not exactly examples of kids who you think they grabbed a hold of their father's face in every way. And so, in some ways, I think that's another lesson for us as we go in slow-mo of David. As we slow-mo David's life, we don't know the exact details of his parenting. We don't know if he followed the Paul Tripp methods. But you do encounter a man who certainly loved God and I reckon his kids would have encountered a man who loved God. And you encounter a man who certainly has the desire to commend to his kids. And if you only even just put that into practice in some measure, these kids would have heard and been raised hearing about a great and glorious God over and over again, I imagine. David's method, we don't know the exact way. But what we can learn from David and consequently how many of his, at least his sons, don't follow in the way of his faith, for me I guess that's a lesson that, that we are saved by grace. And that's key, dads. That your kids are saved by grace, not works, not your works. That your kids' faith or lack of faith is not a result of your work or lack of work. And so again, in some ways we've gone full circle to come back to Boaz that that if if you are aware in this that you are struggling as as a dad, as a parent, that you are more aware of your failures And you can think of countless times and opportunities that you have not taken to point your kids to God, of ways that you have not replicated and modelled a man who trusts God in difficult times. How much more ought this be a lesson then for us that your children's faith is a work of grace? And as dads, one of the best things that we can do is wear out our jeans, holes in our jeans as we spend many, many hours on our knees seeking God on their behalf and praying to the almighty great God that he would work in their lives, that he would work out a, a gracious uh, miracle of faith in the children that, that we are called to steward. Yes, be faithful. Yes, be like Boaz. Trust God in difficult times. Yes, love your wife. Yes, commend this great God to your children. But ultimately, dads, it's a gospel of grace, not works. And so ask God and seek God that he might ultimately bring about salvation for your kids. Don't back yourself, but trust him. That can be challenging, hey? Now, on a morning like this, as we honour dads, as we respect dads, I want us to be able to encourage all the dads in all these things. And I want us, in response to that and finishing like that, as we look at David, that we might be able to pray for our dads. And so in a moment, I'm going to ask us all to stand. And if you're a dad, I'm going to get you to put your hand up. Why don't we do that now? And why don't we gather around our dads 
And let's spend just a couple of minutes praying for our dads and praying for them in this, in this role that God has given them that they might be men who honour God, who like Boaz trust God and love their wives, who like David glory in a great God and commend to their children a great God. And if you're, you're about to become a dad, can you put your hand up too? I should be clear on that. If you're about to become a dad, we want to pray for you and partner with you in this too. So let's gather around them. Don't be embarrassed. If you're a visitor, that's okay. You can stand off or join in. We're not too worried. But let's pray for our dads. Gracious God, you are a glorious God. You are a, a glorious God who loves us with grace and mercy. Father, thank you for the incredible gift that dads are. And thank you for the way that dads, the design, the intention, the purpose of being a dad can point us to you and your glory. The way that dads can love and show grace. The way that dads can make us laugh and smile. The way that dads can give us gifts. They bring judgment. They lavish us and richly bless us. Father, thank you that dads can point us to a great, great God. And may you be with every man in this room who is a dad or about to become a dad. Would you give them the grace to keep their eyes on you, to trust you, to love the mother of their children, to delight in you as a glorious and adorable God, and then overflow in the way that they teach their, their children, the way they commend to their children a great and glorious God. In Jesus' name, amen.